I trust you're all well this very warm, sunny spring morning. We'll be in Isaiah 46 today, if you want to turn there. One of my favorite statements that Jesus said is in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, when he said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And it's very comforting to know that we can, if we have cares, we have worries and concerns, we can come to Jesus with them, and he's able actually to do something with them, not just have sympathy or empathy with us, but he can actually do something to change our condition. He knew what it was like as a son of a carpenter, as a person, to experience physical exhaustion. We read of times where he slept because he was weary. Um, and when Jesus called people with this invitation to rest. He says, come to me and find rest for your souls, you who labor and are heavy laden. I wonder what burdens the people were carrying. If it was just that they had come on a long journey and they were pretty tired because they had gone a long distance to reach Galilee to see him, or maybe they were weary of trying to keep the strenuous demands of the law and that, that Jesus compared to heavy burdens that um, you know, couldn't be lifted. And they were just, they were forcing the people to do these things to honor the law. Or perhaps um, it was sin. The Bible Knowledge Commentary said this, Jesus issued a call to all who are weary, those tired from hard toil, and burdened, those loaded down, to come to him. People's weariness comes from enduring their burdens, probably the burdens of sin and its consequences. So we don't exactly know what burdens the people uh, were carrying or what labors were wearing them out. But we know that Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So it wasn't Christian service. It wasn't following Jesus that was burdensome. It was something else. So more important than the question, answering the question, what labors were those people weary from or what burdens were they carrying is, what burdens am I carrying? What labors are wearing me down? What burdens do you bring in here today, Christian? Like, what, what are we carrying today? What is weighing us down, weighing down our mind or physically? And God offers this, this rest to anyone who will come to him. It was fitting for those people now, and it's extended to you today. So this is really good news if, if you happen to be uh, weary and burdened down. The Lord has rest for you. You don't have to be burdened anymore. It's very good. Let's thank him. Lord, we thank you that you are able to lift these burdens that we carry. And forgive us when we forget that we're to be casting our cares upon you. Thank you, Lord, for giving us a yoke that's easy and a burden that's light. That We do have responsibilities in following you, but it's you who gives us the strength to to follow through and to actually do anything. For your word says that it, you work both in us to will and do of your good pleasure. So we ask, Lord, that you would clear our minds, you would take away distractions, you would take away our um, resistance to your word, and please speak to us each. Thank you for the children as well. Please minister to their hearts. And Lord, we give you ourselves and this time, for it is all yours, and we are yours bought by grace, in Jesus' name. Amen. There are burdens we try to carry that no one can carry.
except Jesus. He's the only one. David wrote in Psalm 38.4, he said, For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. And when he was being attacked by enemies, there were his friends first. He said, my, my close friend has lifted up his heel against me. Saul, a king, his father-in-law was trying to kill him. And this was his discovery in Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burden on the Lord and he shall sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. And this is an amazing thing. It's something that's weighing you down, something you can't lift but God will give you the strength to cast it upon him. Which is really neat. It's like if you're weighed down, you can't even lift the thing, but you can cast it upon Jesus. He'll let you do that. He'll enable you to do that when we trust him. God will give you much more than you can handle so that you'll learn quickly to rely upon him for strength, comfort, and rest. Our natural inclination is to try to do everything ourselves. You see, like little kids, you're like, I do it myself. And you're like, oh, good. At a point, you're happy that they're, they're washing their face by themselves and they're cleaning their hands by themselves and they're dressing themselves. This is all very good. But we can take that mentality to like, I'm independent. I can handle this. And we try to do it. And we try to also do that with our burdens. We try to carry them. And we don't even realize that we're carrying them. We don't realize that we're weighed down. The other side, Our tendency is to depend on other people, to become dependent on this group or this person to help us or to give us guidance instead of the Lord. And anything that we rely on other than God, it's always going to be a burden without the ability to save you. It's not able to help you, really. Anything that we are weighed down with, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, our sufficiency, that means any ability you possess, it comes from God, and he will help. So let's read together Isaiah 46, verse 1. Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols were on the beast and on the cattle. Your carriages were heavily loaded, a burden to the weary beast. They stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Bel and Nebo were idols worshipped by the Babylonians. You remember Belshazzar or Belteshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Nebo. These were gods that were worshipped by the Babylonians. And it was a common practice during the New Year to parade these particular idols through the streets. It was a celebration that they had annually. And if you could just see the picture, you've got these these images, these ornate idols being pulled by animals, beasts, on carts through the streets. And they're just parading these, these images around. And they're weary. He says, your carriages are heavily loaded. You know, they're quite a burden to carry, and the, the animals are actually getting tired from parading these images around the streets. Now, King Cyrus of Persia... He would destroy the Babylonian Empire. He was called by God to do this. And these idols, they would be defeated. They would be no help for the Babylonians. So the idols, the beasts that bore them, not to mention those who worshipped him, they would all go into captivity. And here's the picture. The Babylonians are going into captivity and they're hauling along these idols with them that were unable to save them from Cyrus. 
Their, their nation has fallen apart. They've been defeated. And yet they're carrying these idols. They're weighing themselves down with things that cannot save them. They have not saved them, nor can they save them in the future. Yet for some reason, they're holding on to them. It's ironic, right, that you would be carrying an idol to save you that hasn't saved you. It couldn't save you. Now, the Jews, they did the exact same thing when God brought them out of the land of Egypt. After God gave them victory over their enemies, you know, he brings them through the Red Sea. He, he leads them through the wilderness. He parts the Jordan. They go over. They defeat Jericho, later Ai, and they go through the land of Canaan, and they, they drive out the enemy, and they begin to be established there. And at the end of his life, Joshua says to them, in Joshua 24, 23, Now therefore, he said, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. So if you're reading the passage in context, we see that they had carried idols, their parents, out of the land of Egypt. Idols that represented gods uh, that were associated with light and with frogs. Every plague that God did in Egypt was proof that he was powerful over their God. Like he beat their God every time. Ten plagues, ten gods that he just defeated and said, I'm greater than that. You have to come to me. You can't pray to your God to get rid of the frogs. You have to come to me. You can't pray to your God to make the sun shine. You've got to come to me. And yet, the children of Israel carried their idols out of Egypt, and get this, their kids carried those same idols in the promised land. So let that sink into your ears. The idols of the fallen fathers were carried by their children, and it's a very strong motive then, a motivation for us to put aside our idols so that no one else takes them, no one else picks them up. Now, this idolatry was not just by common people or by ignorant people, but by wise kings, kings like Solomon, before whom God appeared. God appeared before him. He revealed himself to him. He knew God, and yet it says in his later years, his heart was drawn aside by his wives after these idols, and he built high places for their abominations. He burnt incense and sacrificed to these gods. We read about that in 1 Kings 11, 6 through 8. It's a great tragedy. The God that made Solomon wiser than any, he's now forsaken him in seeking other gods. King Amaziah, that's a classic case. God gave him a victory over the Edomites. Absolutely trashed the Edomites and as they, um, let's say, plundered the slain, they came across these deities. And so Amaziah set up these deities to worship himself. They couldn't save those people that he destroyed. And yet instead of worshiping and thanking God, he sets up the, the idols of the Edomites to worship. It says that in 2 Chronicles 25, 14. He brought the gods of the people of Seir, set them up to be his gods, and bowed down before them and burned incense to them. You just go, what? Now, whenever you see something in the Bible and you go, what? Or, what an idiot? Or, how could they? We don't have to look further than ourselves to realize that we have also done the same thing. We may not bow down before images. We may not have uh, sticks of incense being lit in our house. We're very good at giving ourselves a free pass because we don't do exactly what they did. But see, the heart of man is exactly the same. 
It was the same in the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. It was the same in Solomon, though he was wise, King Amaziah, and the people of uh, Isaiah's day. God was the real God. They had him. He revealed himself to them, yet they didn't always follow him. And the same can be said of us. So we're not exempt from this folly if the wisest man who ever lived in his old age was drawn aside to follow after idols. It's good to start well, but it's also important to finish well. Serving the Lord alone. Isaiah 46, verse 3. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb even to your old age. I am he, and even to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, even I will carry and will deliver you. So God addresses his people here, the children of Israel that he had carried from the womb. Israel was carrying along idols that could not save them. But God said, I'm responsible. I'm the one who's been carrying you all along. You're burdened with idols, but I'm carrying you. And then he gives them a lovely promise. Even though they hadn't been faithful to him, he says, I've carried you till now from the womb, and I'm going to carry you even to old age, even to gray hairs. I'm going to bear you. I'm going to carry you. In much of the world today, raising children, it's seen as very important to secure a good future. Parents who have children one day will hopefully have adult children someday to help them. It's kind of like a, an insurance policy, so to speak, in much of the world. Uh, in the West, security typically does not come from children, though it's really nice that children do help their parents when they can. Um, but our security often comes from superannuation, some sort of financial planning, insurance, things that we have set aside, money, so that we can live comfortably in our later years. We've paid into it. But children nor money is a substitute for God. He's the one who carries us. He's the one who has, he didn't just carry you from the womb, he actually knew you and knit you together in your mother's womb. He has carried you until now. He's brought you to this point where he's given you food and shelter and clothing and, and much more besides transport, children, family. And let's make this personal. He looks at you and he says, I am he, I've carried you until now. I have made, I will bear, I will carry, and will deliver you. So he says that to you. The God who can actually do that. The God who speaks, the God who has power. He says, I'm going to do this. There's no shame in growing gray because both children from the womb and adults, even to our gray hairs, he says, I'm going to carry you. I'm not going to disown you. I'm not going to say, you know, I'll put you out to pasture no, he, he's going to carry us. If you want to be free of worry, fear, and uncertainty for your future, you must trust him. God does not provide insurance, but he gives us much assurance. He promises, and his word is true. One of the things that we've been discussing in the discipleship course is 
as followers of Christ, we're members of the church. Christ is the head and we're the body. We're many members placed together as one. It's like all the cells in my body are working together for the health and the growth of the whole. Even so, we as members of Christ, we're to be working and coordinating with one another, contributing. So I don't, it doesn't matter if you're young, if you're older, you have something to contribute. It's not just receiving and it's not just giving. We have to be willing to give, but also to receive from those who give to us. There's a partnership here. You need the body of Christ and the body of Christ needs you. If you could turn in your Bibles to Galatians 6, 2 through 5, we'll read this. We're all different, different people, yet we share a common faith of Christ. He, in the Holy Spirit, He's united us together as one. So we all have a responsibility to love one another, to walk in obedience to the Lord. So in Galatians 6, verse 2, it says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. We're supposed to love one another, to support and help one another. So that means to help others and to allow others to help you. That's actually a great blessing to them and to you, to let someone help you. We all need Jesus. We all need one another. No one here is able to carry their own weight alone. We need the Lord and one another. This is a great challenge for us to lay hold of practically. Like, how does this look? Well, the Lord will reveal even this to you. Because true fellowship, it's not receiving only, it's not just giving only, but serving and allowing others to help in times of need. So that involves communication, like letting people know that you're having a hard time or that you would like prayer or something. That we'd be open, that I am burdened down and but first, primarily, to be taking that to the Lord. That's something that I forget to do. Isaiah 46, verse 5. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? They lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith and he makes it a god. They prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship. They bear it on the shoulder. They carry it and set it in its place and it stands. From its place it shall not move. Though one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer nor save him out of his trouble. God is an eternal spirit of infinite power and wisdom. To make, to, to reduce him to an image made of man's imagine, out of man's imagination of corruptible materials, that's abominable. It's much worse than trying to paint a, a painting of someone you've never met. Or and say that this is an accurate representation of this person when you've never seen them. How could you possibly know? And is there anything equal to God that you could compare with him? It's like we know the folly of, of comparing apples to oranges when they're both fruit, but to compare the creator with his creation, 
is folly. That's ridiculous. Great sculptors and painters, they're much more than marble or oil on canvas. They're living, breathing, thinking beings that are gifted. And even our speech betrays us to an extent that there is a God, because if you've received a gift, if someone is gifted, that means someone had to give it to them and that it was for a particular purpose. So we just say like, oh, he's gifted or she's gifted. Oh, really? What are you saying when you say that? Well, someone has given them a gift. And there was a reason for it, more than a reason, a purpose in that gift. The prophet, he paints this picture of folly and futility. The one who crafts a god, he's hoping for salvation. He makes this this golden god or out of precious materials. He's carrying it on his shoulder. He sets it down, and and there it is. It's not going to move. And when he prays to it, nothing's going to happen. But yeah, he does it anyway. And the thing that really strikes me is this guy, he, he, he has his money, and he chooses how much he's going to pay, and he hires someone to do it. And he has him do a particular job. When I read this, all I see is control. The man's like, I want to have control over my God. And that's what idolatry is. It's like, I get to decide how much I invest. I get to decide what my God is going to look like, what appeals to me. I get to decide what's the right amount of worship and sacrifice that's required. It's really a God in my own image. It's something that I can control, that I can manipulate, that I can be in charge of, which is not really a God. I'm really making myself a God. Atheism, it makes a God of self. Communism, it puts government in God's place. Did you know that ism is actually defined? I looked up ism in the dictionary. And this is what it says, a set of beliefs, especially what you disapprove of. It's like a belief, but it's the anti that you're going to push a bit more. Whenever you have an ism, it's opposing something. Our call is not to oppose everything, but to promote Christ through worship. We're to bend our knees before him, not not uh, worshiping idols or ourselves, to tear down the altars that spring up like weeds in the soil of our hearts, because they do. They just pop up, and we don't even realize it. The world doesn't have answers for our problems. We can cry out to the God of self-help. We can worship the sins of self-belittlement and self-exaltation all you like, but these are impotent. They are useless burdens. They will just weigh you down. They can't save you. They can't fix you. And believe me, we don't like for anybody to try to fix us. God can transform us. We need much more than fixing. We need to be changed the way we think everything. And God's able to do that. He wants to do that. That's his will for us. Isaiah 46, 8. Remember this and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. 
I have purposed it, it will also, I will also do it. God's given us brains to think, yet in spite of the brain's amazing capacity for knowledge and memory function, we don't always remember relevant truth. We forget. A lot of our lives are spent in trying to devise ways so that we won't forget. I mean, just this morning, I actually forgot my Bible and sermon at home. Okay, go figure. I really needed it, but I forgot it. I was thinking about other things, right? There's only so much I can do. Uh, some have estimated the storage space in the human brain to be as much as 2.5 petabytes. And I'd never even heard of a petabyte. But a petabyte, one petabyte, is a 1,000 um, terabytes. Just to give you an idea, that's massive. I don't think you have, like, an external petabyte uh, drive. You may have a terabyte drive, but we're talking a vast amount of information in something that decades of study has yielded just amazement after amazement. We're like, wow, we really don't even know how this brain works. It's like got billions of neurons. It's got so much going on. And we're just trying to figure out how it even works. But it's amazing. It's amazing what it does. Now, a role of a pastor, one of them is to remind people of what they already know. You guys know, probably as much as I do, in many ways, much more than what I know in, in I mean, if you talk about your life or um, your course of study or your job, there's so much I don't know. But I guess one of the roles is to exhort people to to say, are you living like God exists? Does your life show that you, you believe that there is a God and he is able to help you in your current problem? He's able to change you. He's the one that spoke light into darkness when there was no sun and there was no star. It was an unheard of thing. It, it's like the world was formless and void and into the darkness God said, let there be light. And there was light. If you were there, you might think, well, how is there going to be light? I mean, there's no heavenly body to make it bright. And, and what is light anyway? Like you wouldn't have known. But God said, let there be light. Boom, there's light. It's not a problem for him. So he's way outside the square. There's nothing that can contain him. He doesn't need nature or scientific process to accomplish anything. He doesn't need resources because he owns all. Do you suppose that our God, who is real, who is powerful and able to save us, do you think he is caught off guard by your circumstance? That he didn't see it coming? It kind of poses a problem? He'll have to kind of figure out what he's going to do, like plan B? No, he knows what's happening in your life. He knows how you feel. He knows your inclination toward idolatry, but he invites us to pray. We are the transgressors. We are the unfaithful. We are the forgetful, but God is still God no matter what. And he says, my counsel shall stand. I will do all my pleasure. I'm going to do exactly what I want to do, and no one's going to stop him. Now, our God, he is an eternal all-powerful being who created the heavens, the earth, all that's in them in six days. 
He could have done it in a second. He could have done it in an instant. It's all just here. But he chose to take time and establish a week. You know, you wouldn't have a weekend without a week. And you wouldn't have a week unless God made the world in six days and rested on the seventh. He made a week. If your God can do that, can't he do anything? Can't he do everything? Is anything too hard for him? Now, there are some, even Christians, who will explain away as figurative the first 11 chapters of Genesis and other parts of the Bible. Now, if you're one of those who will discount that to accommodate some scientific ideas, consider what God wrote down on the stone of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20:11 in the Fourth Commandment. It says, For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now, I don't think the Ten Commandments is figurative. That's written in stone by the finger of God. So there there you go. If God can speak, speak light into darkness, if he can create the world from nothing, if he can raise Jesus from the dead, can't he handle the problem you're facing in his time and in his way? The things God does, they take time. They don't have to, but he has a purpose in it. See, people can say, I believe, and and without even acknowledging God, say, I believe everything happens for a reason. I don't exactly believe that, because I believe everything happens for a purpose, and purpose is far greater than reason. If it happens for a reason, that means I can explain to you why it happened and what it's accomplishing. I can't do that. I don't understand why there's a particular war going on or why there's a sickness in a family or why this series of events has unfolded. I can't explain that, right? I can't reason with you. And and then after you hear the reason, you're like, okay, it makes sense. It's all right that I'm suffering. It's all right that I feel like I'm dying right now. It's, It's fine because there's a reason for it. No, there's a purpose for it. God is going to accomplish something good and amazing in your life for his glory through this very thing that we just want to go away now. And he's saying, won't you trust me? Do you believe that I am the one who spoke light into darkness? Do you believe that I created the heavens and the earth? Do you think that I, I, do you, don't you know that I've carried you from the womb? I've created you in the womb and I'm going to carry you even into the future. I'm going to bring you into an eternal home with me forever. I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you can be. And if he is that God, then we should trust him. We should believe him and be casting our cares upon him not clinging to them ourselves. Because so many of the burdens we carry, it comes from not trusting God. We forget that he can do the impossible, that he does miracles. Over the course of my walk, God has shown me, and I see little bits here and there, even very recently where, you know, when you're, I'll just say dump a bit. When you kind of just, ah, you, you, you kind of, you're complaining and you complain to someone, and, and it just doesn't do it for you. And you, the next person that comes along, you you got to say the same thing to them. And, and, then, and then you still don't feel better about it. And, and you, you realize that, hey, I'm, I'm not unloading anything. 
it may feel good for a second to get it off, but you realize it's still on you. It's still weighing you down. It's only God that can free you of that burden. He's the only one that can deal with that problem. And, and I have been guilty of doing that with people, taking my problems to people, when I haven't even talked to God about it at all. There was once, years ago in the States, I had a pool table, and uh, one of the pool cues broke, and, and uh, when I was picking up the, the bottom end of it, I'm like, ooh, this is pretty weighty. I mean, if there was a home intruder, this thing coming across the back of your, your head would really... You'd be seeing stars. So uh, I, I didn't have a gun or anything. Uh, so I, I, I said, you know, home protection plan, stick. Put it under my bed. I'm like, just wait, robber. You come in here. And I was so convicted. I think it was under my bed for like a day. Because uh, God's like, don't you think I can protect you? Aren't I better than a stick? It's like, oh, Lord, you're right. And I don't need a gun. I don't need a stick. I, I just need to trust you. There was another time, uh, recently, uh, probably a couple of years ago, I had bought a product and I had paid good money for it and, and, uh, the company was really giving me the runaround and weren't delivering at all and I was considering taking legal action and, like, everything's going through my head. My, my mind is just going all the time, like, oh, there's this problem and I'm trying to figure out what I can do and I've tried the email and I've tried the call and I've, I've tried all these things and, and it was at the point where I'm considering, you know, what is my legal right here? What recourse do I have? That God said, aren't I plead your case more than a court order? Like, how about me being your advocate? And I was like, oh, convicted again. Yes, Lord, I'm not trusting you here. I'm definitely not trusting you. Now, I don't want to say that protecting your family, having some sort of security system, or using the courts that God has ordained is a problem, or it's wrong in itself. But if you are seeking to use those things or to leverage them without faith in God, it is sin. That's the difference. Nothing wrong with seeking the aid of courts. Nothing wrong with that at all. But if it's in place of trusting God, then you have a serious problem. Because you're looking to the courts to help you rather than God to save you. And even if you, even if you get the result in your favor, it doesn't mean that you're maturing and growing in faith. In fact, quite the opposite could be happening. God has protected my family all these years. And I'll tell you, once I was convicted and I repented, the Lord brought a pretty speedy resolution, a pretty good resolution with the purchase. But even if he hadn't, there was a lesson I learned. And and you notice it's not just one time. There's been a series of times where God said, you're forgetting, you're forgetting, you're taking your problems to people instead of me. God says, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I've spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. There are a countless amount of ways that God could have disciplined or delivered his people. But he called King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. 
to destroy Jerusalem and take captive his people for 70 years. And he also anointed King Cyrus of Persia to swoop like a bird of prey and to plunder the Babylonians. This bird of prey that caught the Babylonians unaware, it would be salvation for the Jews, for Cyrus would deliver them and send them back to Israel with funding so that they could rebuild the temple, so that worship could commence. Before Cyrus was born, God had devised this plan of salvation for his people, and he called him his anointed. And we can also have confidence that in the things you're going through, God has purposed it, he has spoken, he will do it. And this is why God's word is such a a priceless uh, treasure to us, because we learn what God has said and what he's done. We can see the history of Israel. We also have our own history, how God has carried us. We can look back on our lives and say, Lord, you protected me. I was heading in the wrong direction. I was in the, the wrong place, and you brought me out. You saved me. It tells us we can count on God. And this word purpose there, I have purposed it. It is like a the word, there's a picture that goes with the word, and it's like a potter squeezing clay into a mold or form. So he takes the wet clay and he's forcing it into this mold. And he's saying, I have purposed it. Like I already have the form, I already have the mold, and and the clay doesn't always, well, it's not going to want to go in there. It's going to, there's going to be some resistance. If you ever tried to just push clay into a mold, it takes some work. There's going to be pressure, but there was a purpose. It would come out a vessel. It would come out something for his use. We can know God has a divine purpose behind suffering, behind trials to accomplish good in our lives. Paul was convinced of this, and it's, it's a It's a glorious day when we, too, come to that conclusion. Isaiah 46, 12. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted, who are far from righteousness. I bring my righteousness near. It shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger. And I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Now, we've all known stubborn people, right? We probably don't have to look beyond ourselves to find such a self-willed one. According to Samuel, stubbornness is as idolatry. So if you've managed to stay off the hook as far as idols go, if you're stubborn, or if you say that's part of my character, know that you fall into the same place. It says in 1 Samuel 15, 22 and 23, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. So when he says, listen to me, you stubborn-hearted who are far from righteousness, he's talking to me. Because all have sinned. He's talking to us. So I don't believe he's just talking to the Babylonians. I don't believe he's just talking to the Jews who are in idolatry. I think this is just his word through the ages saying, people, listen up. You who have no righteousness in yourselves, you who are unable to change or to help yourself, listen up because, and he's giving this promise to the stubborn, to people who don't deserve God's favor. And he says, I will bring my righteousness near. 
I'm going to bring my righteousness to you. I am going to come as a man to save you. Jesus, he's that chosen Messiah. Cyrus was going to deliver God's people out of Babylon, but Jesus has come to set sinning captives free. Those who were have the death sentence in themselves, he has come to save us, to deliver us. If you could turn to Ephesians 2, starting in verse 12. We read of how Jesus has spanned this gap that separated us from God. Our condition was, well, in our flesh there dwells no good thing. And Paul is reminding the Ephesians of their background, kind of the pit and the mire that God drew them out of, and their new identity and access to God through Jesus. And this is for you if you're a believer. Ephesians 2.12 says that at that, and just for the sake of time, I've, I've kind of taken the middle of this. That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, therefore putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we have both access, both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore... You are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We're no longer strangers, but sons. We have the everlasting promises of God. We were condemned by our sin. The law condemned us, but God has reconciled us to himself. He's made a way for us. He's made us one with himself. We had no claim to righteousness, but God has claimed us by grace. And he has imputed, he's given his righteousness to us. Isaiah 46.13, it says, God's salvation is not far off, but it shall not linger. Your life on earth, it provides a tiny window of opportunity compared, I guess, in the light of eternity to respond to the gospel through faith in Christ. The man who falls off a ship into a freezing sea has a very small window when he will be able to move his limbs to grab the life preserver that's thrown to him. It, it takes only minutes in cold water for you, your arms and legs to go numb and not long for hypothermia to set in. We were like that mariner who's been thrown overboard into a freezing sea We've lost consciousness and we're bobbing around on a scrap of wreckage. And there was no hope for us. We were as good as dead, but God in his grace, he has reached down and he has picked us up. He has warmed us. He has filled us with his spirit. He has given us life and feeling again. 
We were no prize, but in his mercy he revived us. So we can't forget what God has done. That he's done the impossible in giving us righteousness when we are only sinning. And he's reconciled himself, us to him. We, we were aliens. We were outside of the promise. And yet he has come to us. And he has made us born again. Members of his family. Blind, but now we see. Captives set free. If you could turn to James 4.17, just have a point of application. New Testament, James 4.17. As children of God, as followers of Jesus, we know it's a good thing to believe God's word and trust him. God's people, they sinned in their stubbornness and their idolatry. They tried to save themselves. It was a sin because they did not trust God. And if you read in James 4.17, it says, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. If you'll notice, the beginning of verse 17, it begins with therefore, and so it connects to a previous thought. So let's begin reading in verse 13. Now, I don't know about you, but I had heard that verse many times without the therefore. You know, to him who knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. Okay, that, I mean, that, that is a principle and that's important. But this is actually tying a whole thought together. This is the conclusion. So we need to read what the point is. Verse 13, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Our understanding, our vision is very small. We don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. We can make plans. We can say, oh, I'm going to go to work tomorrow. Or we have this meeting. Or we're going to have pizza for dinner. And you're like, yes, right? We can be, get excited about even what we're eating. But we, we are, can be very presumptuous. We are presumptuous. If our life is com compared to a vapor to say what's going to happen to us tomorrow, much less what we'll accomplish. He says, you don't even know if you're going to be alive tomorrow. You have no idea. Everything in your life can change. And as I went through and as I'm considering it now, I believe that uncertainty of the future is what the Lord would like to lay before you today. Worrying about future plans, concerns about What's going to happen in your child's life? What's going to happen with this exam? What's going to happen? Something about the future. So often our future is an idol that we lug around. Like, what am I going to do if? How will I deal with this? What if the market crashes? And we just go through. But the future, the future is, can be an idol. 
we can be very fickle. We're like, Lord, I'm willing to do my part if I have your assurance that it's going to turn out the way that I want, the way that I'm comfortable with, right? We totally do that. We'll pray if God will answer. We'll obey to openly share the gospel if people come to be born again right then. We'll commit fully if it means I can have my way. Like, we hold back. There's something in us that just, we cling to our own plans and our goals and our future, and we worry about it, but we don't trust God. God wants us to do the good we know to do right now without holding back, because our future is safe in Him. The one who knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin, and he's speaking about plans. Hey, tomorrow we're going to do this. We're going to make a profit. Well, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Verse 17 ties it all together. And I just ask you, fellow believer, are we ready to seriously follow Jesus? Am I ready to get serious about obeying what the good that God has told me to do today? Isn't it time for us to do the good things that he has told us to do? The things that we know? There's a lot that we don't know about the future. But the things that you do know, are you willing to do them because you trust him? The Jews came to Jesus and they said, how can we do the works of God? And we also ask to obtain our ends. What do you want me to do, God? Tell me anything and I'll do it. And John 6, 29, it answers all who will hear. Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Trust me, believe me. So I ask, are you weary today solving your own problems, trying to burden with the weight of self or the future unknowns? Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you say, well, this is an impossible situation. How are you going to do that? And I just remind you, he is the God who said, let there be light into the darkness, and there was light. You cannot explain how God did it. You might as well ask, well, how did you raise Jesus from the dead? But we know that Jesus has been raised from the dead. He was seen, and he is now risen in eternal glory. That sun that's shining today, the fact that there's seven days in a week, it says God did it just the way he said, and we can trust him. So take courage. Be comforted, brothers and sisters. The Lord knows you. He has purposed it, and he will do it. Lord, we thank you that you are a great God, that you know we are easily burdened by many things, even by much serving. And I ask, Lord, that you would reveal to us what it is that we're lugging around, what's weighing us down at the moment, and that you might uh, quicken us to confess sin, to trust you, and to follow hard after you, to do the good that we know to do today. Thank you, Lord, again for your word, how you speak to our heart, and you do so to meet our need. Thank you that we need you, and you've supplied yourself in Jesus. You've given us your spirit to indwell us, and that we can rejoice evermore that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. In Jesus' name, amen.